The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. How are you? Just the same, Father. Good yes. to see you as yes, always. You too. Father, did you want to uh, ask for any prayers tonight before we get started? Well, I just reiterate the prayer request we had. I'd like to thank everyone for praying for little... Noel Anastasia, she is home doing well. The newborn is uh, going to thrive, we pray. And uh, there are a number of other children who do need prayers. God knows who they are, so I won't share names. Please pray for them, and God will, will bless them because of you and your request. <clears throat> and also some very good souls who are quite ill and uh, hopefully recovering from surgery. Please pray for, uh, well, Joe Pritcher, for one, and uh, Cliff Hogan will be having surgery tomorrow. Some long-time dear friends, very solid traditional Catholics from way back. So uh, there are many others too, Dave Hofrichter, and I guess the list, I, I could name <laughs> about 50 people right now. But um, as I say, God knows who they are, and he will bless them. Uh, we don't have to name them to you because they're named in the divine mind and in the Immaculate Heart of Mary. She carries them there, so... Thank you for your prayers for those who are ill. Yes. Uh, please also pray for the, the deceased, always. Keep them in your prayers every single day. Okay, mm -hmm. thank you, Father. Uh, well, Father, on last week's program, we talked about uh, Garibandal and the alleged apparitions there, and we, um, we received some feedback from that, some, some positive, some, some negative. So um, I think we wanted to begin tonight with maybe just a brief <clears throat> follow-up on Garibandal and one email in particular, uh, one comment I just wanted to read to you, Father. Uh, this, this video said um, that, uh, you said, knowing that you referenced LifeSite News on the show, they have a video of the John Henry Weston show uh, where he inter interviews Glenn Hudson, who personally knows Conchita, the, the main Garibandal visionary. Uh, in that interview, he explains a lot about the apparitions and prophecies. There is always an attempt to discredit anything, this viewer says. From what I've seen, the negative spin seemed unwarranted. The messages given were right on, especially considering Vatican II was ending when the last one, which was real at the time and since shown prophetic. That many cardinals, many bishops, and many priests are on the road to perdition and are taking many souls with them. The videos and accounts are supernatural and the message anything but satanic. The prophecies are simply yet to be fulfilled, so there's perhaps a little more looking into what really happened at Garabandal. Any response to that, Father? Well, I would say there's always more to look into, certainly. Um, I think it's important to note there that uh, I think what was said, what I said, was that I urge caution and that I think we should focus on Fatima, the message of Fatima. Um, and uh, because that, that is something that it, uh, carries the church, uh, church's approbation, right? Uh, the true church's approbation. And so I think that's where our confidence should be. 
Um, I don't see Garabandal really adding anything. Um, I do agree that there's something above the natural happening ha that happened there. And uh, the question is whether it's preternatural or supernatural. Is it from God or is it from some creative power less than God? Um, and there are still some very disturbing things about it. Okay. Um, so, I, I, as I say, I mean, I, I come down simply saying I urge caution and I uh, encourage people to f focus on the message at, at Fatima. Mm -hmm. I think we can have complete confidence in that. That's all. Um, you know, we do know people who also have uh, met uh, Conchita and others involved in Garabandal and uh, people who actually were very favorably disposed. And that's why they arranged to meet with them and to speak with them. But they came away with uh, some very troubled impressions also. And um, they, um, you know, I wouldn't say they're, they're going around trumpeting from the housetops the difficulties that they saw from their meeting, but uh, they have certainly made them known to us that they, they did what they could to look into this and they, they found it troubling. And what they initially um, found a very hopeful, they, they came to find troubling after actually talking with Conchita and, um, and others. So um, I, I think we do have to be careful there because um, even though it was said, by the way, I think what this writer says is this, there was something as a, the closing of Vatican II, actually um, the... The alleged apparitions of Garabandal began um, before Vatican II even started and uh, lasted kind of throughout the early years of Vatican II. Um, so I don't know how prophetic they had to be to see where Vatican II was going. But I do say there is a um, just a strange, uh, if it's a segue, I don't know. There's a strange. Uh, sequence of events here from John the 23rd refusing to uh, reveal the third secret of Fatima and then uh, the very next year this series of events happened in Garabandal which are in marked contrast really uh, to the um, to the nature and the, the, this, the, the manner of these apparitions in, uh, in Fatima right I mean you don't have the children uh, walking and running backwards at Fatima, which is a very strange phenomenon. Um, you know, uh, uh, Garabandal, I understand that our lady instructed people not to bring anything blessed to her because she wants them to bring only things that aren't blessed so that she can bless them herself. That seems very odd, you know. Um, at, at Lourdes, our, the Bernadette brought holy water. The priest instructed her to take holy water and cast it in the direction of the, of the apparition to see if it was diabolical. And with the holy water, Our, our Lady smiled, you know, benignly at Bernadette. And so you have Our Lady here instructing, don't bring anything, anything blessed to me, because I want to bless it myself. This, there are certain striking departures from very striking departures from things, apparitions, private revelations that the churches has approved before. 
And these things uh, I find troubling. You know, um, you know the, the writer mentions about uh, prophecies that are still going to take place, but we also mentioned that there were a number of prophecies that were were made very clear, they were recorded, well-known, and not only did they not take place, they cannot take place, because the person died um, without recovering his sight, right? And um, the priest's own body, which was supposed to be found corrupt, incorrupt, found incorrupt, has already been exhumed and found quite corrupted, you know? So, um, you know, we, we can say, well, these prophecies are yet to be fulfilled, but we can't ignore, at the same time, there are prophecies made that were not fulfilled and will not be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. They were proven to be false, essentially. So, um, so for this, these reasons, I just encourage caution. I don't see any benefit to Yerapandal except to shore up, try to shore up a weak faith. Uh, the people need some signs and wonders. You know, our Lord said, our Lord said, a wicked and perverse generation demands signs and wonders, you know. But um, those who have a strong faith don't need these signs and wonders to to believe and uh, to make sense out of what's happening today, for that matter. Um, So I I just, again, I just urge caution and focus on the message of Our Lady of Fatima, and you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't need any more of that. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Not in my book, anyway. Yeah. It's my own opinion. It's a, it's a personal opinion. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, well, something else we... And, by the way, yeah. I give that because someone asked. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's the only reason. Yes, that, several several people asked. Um, mm-hmm. Well, Father, something else we, we wanted to discuss on the on the program tonight was um, was Father Ripperger and his um, book of deliverance prayers that um, mm. over, over the years we've, we've received um, multiple, multiple emails on this subject and uh, some of the, the prayers that he has in there and just some of the, the general ideas of this, um, the, these deliverance prayers and, um, and just the, uh, the, the little bit of information we, we've, uh, we've researched in regards to this. We, um, in this book, the deliverance prayers, he has a... Uh, I guess the premise for it is any, uh, he, Father Ripperger himself says that priests today, uh, he says any seminary in the world, they do not learn about spiritual warfare. They do not learn um, how to combat the devil. They do not learn about, about uh, exorcisms and, and how, to, uh, how to fight the devil. And so the premise of this book is uh, a, a guide essentially to help the laity and the spiritual warfare and their their um, battles against against the devil, and so that, that's that's the premise of these deliverance prayers, and, uh, and and reading through some of the prayers in this little booklet, which is very popular. Again, many of our, our viewers have have referenced this. Um, we find uh, prayers, things like a uh, perimeter protection prayer, and prayers against generational spirits, and um, various <laughs> various things like that. And uh, so I wanted to, to ask, ask your opinion on these um, deliverance prayers, Father, if you were familiar with um, at all with any of these and what your, what your thought was on this, on the laity praying these deliverance prayers and their spiritual warfare. When I first heard of these, I, 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 without knowing Father Ricker's name, I thought, well, it sounds like a Protestant approach, like a Protestant substitute for exorcism or something of the kind. And... Um, I mean, can there be prayers of deliverance? Well, of course, we pray, deliver us from evil, right, in the, in the Our Father. 
So there's nothing wrong with the idea of being delivered from evil, obviously. <clears throat> but uh, still, you know, in the church we have exorcisms, and I guess Father Ripperger is concerned that non-exorcists not perform exorcisms, right? <clears throat> I understand that too. Because it is, it is dangerous. Um, but the whole idea of having like, prayers to protect the periphery and prayers to like, overcome generational spirits or prayers to reverse decisions and things like that. Uh, again, the whole idea sounded rather, well, not just Novosoro, but actually kind of Protestant to me. Um, and um, as I recall, uh, mentioning that there were some, some prayer, at least, was proposed. It's a Protestant prayer right? that was taken over, and Father Ruffiger says he Catholicized it, I guess. Which, yeah. again, sounds rather peculiar. I mean, I can see people applying those, and, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if, if they're, what the result is supposed to be, if they're supposed to see an improvement in the situation or the evil is ameliorated or whatever, I, I really don't know. I guess I'd have to check that out and read the uh, foreword mm -hmm. to the book, which I haven't done. But I, I just find it rather peculiar. I, in fact, I find it so peculiar because um, someone just sent us a, uh, a video clip of an inter interview with Father Ripperger in which he actually warns lay people not to, get it, not to engage the devil. You know, not to engage evil spirits, because he says that the evil spirits can turn on them and wreak vengeance on them. So uh, I was immediately puzzled as to why there seems to be a contradiction between uh, handing, you know, laity, the laity, a book of deliverance prayers, which is basically, um, well, I, I can't help but think that there's some matter shape or form of engaging some diabolical powers on the one hand, and on the other hand, um, uh, actually, you know, uh, exercising and, and kind of stepping on the devil's toes, as it were, and provoking them. Now, maybe the exorcism prayers take more the sense of, you know, appealing to Almighty God and St. Michael the Archangel, maybe they are not directed to the demon. Um, maybe they're directed to God, and maybe they're directed to, let's say, St. Michael the Archangel, to the Blessed Mother, St. Joseph. And those prayers, deliverance prayers, they would be asking for deliverance from this um, perceived besetting power or persecuting power. That would be very different than an exorcism, where the priest, the exorcist, is actually commanding the devil to leave. Okay, So there might be that distinction there. I, I don't know. You probably have, are more familiar with the the prayers themselves than I, than I am. A, a little bit, Father. I haven't <clears throat> haven't read through um, read through many of them, but uh, and I, I did watch some of um, various interviews with Father Ripperger, and mm -hmm. one of the things he talks about a lot is this uh, this this chain of authority mm -hmm. that exists, where um, you know he says that parents have have certain authority and rights over their children, and so uh, even over their spouse. And so it says if some, uh, you know, they, they perceive there's some kind of demonic influence over, say, a child or a spouse, that a, a parent or the other spouse has a certain right um, over that individual and so that they can actually command that, that demon to leave, uh, that, that demonic presence influence to leave that, their, say, their child alone because this parent has a certain right 
over that. He applies that to the spouse as well. He says that spouses, as such, have certain rights over the bodies of, of their spouse. And so if, if there is this demonic influence there, the, the other party can command this, this demonic uh, spirit to leave because he has rights over, say, a man, say, over his wife. Um, what do you think about that idea, Clive? Is there any truth? Well, I, you know, the devil wouldn't be the devil if he, if he uh, respected rights. If he respected rights, um, he would not have done what he done, did in the first place. So I can't imagine the devil being impressed by that. Whether that gives, let's say, a parent a certain moral authority in the sense of, to command a devil to leave a child alone. Perhaps Father Raper is, is referring to that. Uh, I don't know. I mean, <clears throat> I think the, the classical Catholic training is <clears throat> that the, the devil knows who has authority over him. And that authority uh, must ultimately come from God, of course, comes through the uh, ordination conferred by the church. And again, I mean, it, it does uh, puzzle me. See, back in 1972, um, this is after Vatican II, okay? Um, Paul VI basically revised the minor and the major orders. Up until then, the minor orders, the gateway to the order, receiving the minor orders, was tonsure, okay, which made a man a cleric, a member of the clergy. And then he would be ordained porter, and, and he would be ordained lector, and then exorcist, and then acolyte. And those are the four traditional minor orders, okay? Notice exorcist was the third of the minor orders at the time. Then the major orders, uh, the subdiaconate, diaconate, and the priesthood, right? And in 1972, Paul VI did away with, he did away with Porter, and he did away with exorcists. He did away with them. Uh, he simply annihilated them. They didn't exist anymore in the new order. Uh, he did away with the subdiaconate, too. He just, uh, just uh, suppressed it entirely. So uh, then, as far as the minor, the major order go, the major order of deacon, for example, he opened it to laity and married men. So, yes, they do have a married clergy in the Novus Ordo, deacons, and uh, converts from Anglicanism who arrive with their wives and children and so on. So they do actually have a married clergy there. But the order of exorcist was basically simply suppressed in 1972. They didn't ordain anybody. This is part of the problem when Father Ripperger says nobody's being taught these things. Well, he's simply echoing the words of Father Amorth in his book, An Exorcist Tells His Story. Father Amorth wrote this 20 years ago, that uh, the clergy were not, the, uh, the modern church, were not being trained in this. And that's why there was such an upsurge of the diabolical, demonic influence in the world. So, uh, Father Ripperger is basically saying this is continuing. This is a continuing process here. <clears throat> but if they don't ordain them to, uh, as exorcists, and heaven only knows if they, if they kept the order of exorcists and revised it, what would that even mean? Because we look at the new right for you know, ordaining deacons and priests and so on, those new rites are very suspect. <clears throat> so what would they have done with the order of exorcists? <clears throat> In fact, it was Father Amorth who was upset uh, and wrote in his book that um, <clears throat> this was very necessary, there'd be the power of exorcism and it's not there, 
he was getting calls from priests and bishops to come and do exorcisms. He was getting calls from basically all over the world, I gather. And he would tell them, well, have your exorcists do it. They don't have any. And he would tell the bishops, well, you do it. And the bishops would say, I'd have no idea where to begin. Uh, which pr simply proved Father Amore's point. That it was complete abdication, you know, on the part of the New Order clergy here. I gather now that the Novus Ordo has kind of, uh, well, actually there was a response to Father uh, Amore's book. <clears throat> he was complaining that the Vatican II and the, the subsequent uh, revision in the liturgy, <coughs> the subsequent revision in the rituale, did not provide a new rite of exorcism. It simply ignored it entirely, and it disappeared. They did away with the right, the the uh, the order of exorcist, and they did away with the right of exorcism. <clears throat> and so, uh, after Father Amor's book, they powers that be in the Vatican, the modernists tried to create a rite of exorcism, which Father Amorth later remarked was totally useless. And he said if he had to use that, he would give up. He would simply give up. Um, there was no power in it whatsoever. And uh, so I think if they, if they were going to revise their rite of exorcist, making exorcists, again, uh, along the same lines of thinking, I would question whether it had any real power to it. Um, but in the traditional rite of, of uh, ordaining an exorcist, there's no doubt what power is being given. And there's no doubt that the devil, the devil knew who had power over him. <clears throat> and that, that power would come from that, you know, the church's ordination of that man as an exorcist to, to do precisely that work on behalf of Christ, on behalf of his church. <clears throat> So, um, in terms of, you know, somebody having a familiar relationship, well, I'm your parent, so I have a right to tell the devil to leave you alone. I don't, I don't see how that works uh, on a natural level. But even looking at the question of, uh, I mean, you can have a, a, a Muslim father and a, a Muslim child, you know, have that same relationship, sort of, I guess, uh, uh, in that sense of the word, if you're talking about parental rights that are natural rights from God, that would apply to pagans or Jews or atheists or anyone, right? That they would have some kind of power to command the devil. I don't see that. But also, um, uh, well, you know, I get into another home, uh, another realm here, and and, and I don't want to go off on it on any more tangents. <clears throat> but I understand that uh, Father Amore said that, or Father uh, Ripperger even said that that did not apply to godparents and godchildren. You think, well, there's a spiritual relationship between godparents and godchildren. The parents have given responsibility, and that responsibility has been freely accepted by godparents. Uh, who are blessed by the church, and this is something of a supernatural relationship. So I don't understand why why that wouldn't work. So there are a number of things. There are just questions I would have. Uh, Father Ripperger might have answers and good answers. I don't, I don't know, but I, I definitely think there are questions that arise from this that are yeah. worthy to ask. But Father, does it seem problematic that um, 
Father Riffiger apparently seem, seems to agree with what you're saying, what, what Father Morth said, that uh, I think he, he might even say exactly that something to the effect that no seminary in the entire world uh, today, he says, teaches, um, teaches about exorcism and, and anything like that. And so, but it, it seems that his solution to this is to, in some way, empower the laity um, with and, and give them the, the tools of, of exorcism. Is that... Whom he warns against, at the same time, engaging with yes, these evil yes. powers, right? Because they can turn on you and, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. attack you or your family. Doesn't that seem very problematic? It does. It, it does seem problematic. And of course, it must be. If you depart from traditional Catholic teaching on these things, and you face the reality of what the modernists have done to the church, yeah, you're, you're going to be experiencing problems and internal contradictions if you're trying to hold on to the traditional teaching of the church and the modernist practices. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're not going in the same direction. You know, uh, they're not in the same church. They're, they don't, they're not in the same faith. So if you're trying to do both at the same time, you're necessarily going to have contradictions come up all the time. And Father, doesn't this uh, this whole idea kind of lend itself to a uh, a, a non-Catholic understanding of, of prayer and um, exorcisms in, in general? Because some some of the comments that that uh, that we've read on some of his interviews have uh, been from people who have said things like they were praying at an abortion clinic and uh, these witches showed up uh, there on the grounds, and so they prayed the, the perimeter protection prayer and uh, therefore sealed off the, the perimeter and, and kept the witches at, at bay. Mm -hmm. And it almost seems like it's this kind of magical... Well, the perimeter protection prayer, just, it, it, I mean, what came to mind is an episode in the life of Aleister Crowley, where they draw the circle, and within the circle they're safe, you know? It seems very peculiar to me. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'd probably be odd. Yeah. Certainly. I don't know that there was... I, I wonder what historical or... Well, historical precedent in the church means tradition. I wonder what traditional precedent there is for such a thing, a perimeter protection prayer in the church. I, I don't know where that would have come from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, what, what, is, what is the traditional Catholic understanding of someone um, perceives there's some kind of demonic influence in their lives, or maybe their, their, their family, their children, their spouse, something like that? What should they do in the traditional Catholic family? If they believe there's some demonic influence there? Well, I mean, the church would say, of course, pray. I mean, we have the various prayers to St. Michael the Archangel, obviously. A parent uh, or anyone should not really attempt an exorcism. Um, you know, uh, Father Morth was saying that his primary, his initial job when people brought to him someone they suspected was suffering diabolical influence, that Father Morth's initial responsibility was to try to determine if there was, in fact, a diabolical presence there, notably possession. And he said that in itself was a very arduous task. He said, you, basically, you, you, you could only force the devil to reveal himself because you had the authority to do so. If the devil, if the demon is present there and he doesn't want to reveal himself, then only, only someone with actual authority over him can command him to do so. And it takes a long time, as Father Moore testifies, to force the demon to actually come out into the open and make himself known. Why? Well, because 
if the devil, if, if, if I, would, I would say the demon, okay, these are condemned souls who want to possess a body, <clears throat> that um, if they know that there is someone there, a real exorcist who has authority to command them, they will hide themselves. With regard to other people who don't have authority over them, they, they may flaunt themselves and flaunt their power. But if somebody has the authority to command them, they do just the opposite. They're like bullies. When they can throw their weight around, they do. But when they're bested, um, they're cowards. They, they want to hide. Sort of like the cockroaches that come out when the lights are off and feast, and when the lights go on, they scramble, you know, recover in every which way. And that's how these demons are. So, um, um, but what, you know, if, if parents really do believe that there is a diabolical influence involved, the church has given them means of praying. Where did St. Michael the Archangel, use of the sacramentals? I think Father Ripperger said the young clergy don't know anything about sacramentals. I think he basically made that point, right? So um, if they don't know it, they weren't raised with it, and they're not, they weren't taught it in their modern seminaries. So, um, But, I mean, true Catholic parents know what sacramentals are. They're familiar with the St. Benedict Medal. They're familiar with holy water. Uh, they're familiar with any number of things, uh, prayer to St. Michael the Archangel. And these are spiritual weapons that they can use in this warfare. But if they really believe there is a diabolical presence there, uh, that is more than passing, um, then they really need to contact the local traditional priest and ask him uh, for advice. Not, not that all traditional priests are well-schooled in these things, of course, but they know what they don't know. And any traditional priest, I think, will know what he doesn't know and will, will seek advice. Where he, He'll find out. Mm -hmm. We have the means of actually investigating. Whatever he traditional priest should do, I think immediately, to begin with, if he hasn't already done it, is open up the traditional rituale and read the 21 instructions in Latin that precede the chapter on exorcism, chapter, uh, chapter 11. He should read those, familiarize himself with those. I would recommend that all traditional priests read Father Amor's book, too. And Exorcist tells this story. I think it's very instructive. Um... But I, I would certainly caution, uh, you know, parents, well, uh, don't try to engage, and I think Father Ripperger would say this too, uh, don't try to engage a demon um, because you are not, well, not only are you not qualified, you're not trained to do it. There are definite rules to follow. I mentioned the 21 um, statements of the church uh, guiding the, the exorcist in the rituale. But, uh, but you don't have the power invested in you, either. Um, the power of the holy order, the minor order. Um, and e even now, I mean, they have exorcists in the Novus Ordo that are set aside as exorcists. I don't know how they're made exorcisms, exorcists. I don't know how they are. They don't, evidently, they still don't consider it to be an order, either a minor order or a major order. They consider it a ministry. <clears throat> I mean, essentially what Paul VI did in 1972 was he reduced the number of minor orders by half and the, take, took the subdiaconate away. And now we're referring to not orders, but ministries. So I guess they consider exorcism to be a ministry right now.
so what does that mean? You know, it, traditionally speaking, I mean, that, that's a very broad term. I mean, holy orders had a very specific meaning. Ministry is a very broad, nebulous term. You know? yeah. It can be anything basically you want. And uh, John uh, Fran Francis has opened all these ministries to the laity and, and lay women, as well as lay men. So, again, it's becoming a very, very nebulous, undefined term of ministry. Yeah. So I, I, um, I would recommend that uh, if they're looking if they really fear an actual diabolical presence, they find a traditional priest who is truly traditional, not just traditionalistic, but is really traditional and follows the church's tradition, you know, completely. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, um, I'm sure we'll receive some feedback from that, Father, so we'll, uh, um, we'll, we'll may have a follow-up on that and we'll continue to, to research it a bit mm -hmm. more, too. Possibly so. Yeah. Um, well, who knows, maybe Father Ripperger will send you an email and um, I doubt it. talk about that. <laughs> we'll we see. We get Father Jenkins and see. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> but have some good answers. That'd be nice. I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, well, Father, we also wanted to um, to touch on something you, you referenced in one of our previous programs where you were talking about uh, Francis and his um, senatorial church and some of uh, the, the documents that, um, that he had put out in regards to that. And you, at one point in those, mentioned a, a quote um, that he, uh, or Francis cited St. John Chrysostom, uh, something to the effect about a, a senatorial church and how this was a very traditional thing. I believe you wanted to follow up with that, that quote from St. John Chrysostom. Well, last, last program, Tom, you're absolutely right. We were talking about Francis's senatorial church, how he's in the middle of a two-year a synod on synodality, right? And all over the Nova Soro Church out the world, they're having these uh, local synods to talk about synodality. And this is going to come to a great crescendo in Rome in October of 2023, when it's all going to draw to a close, come to a head, and Francis is going to unveil this great uh, edifice that he's, that he's put together of a, of a, a church of a synod. A synodal church, okay? It's not going to be the Catholic Church, it's very clear. You read the document with which Francis kind of kicked off this synodality question. And it's a document, it's an address of Francis. We talked about this last week, given on Saturday, October 17th in the year 2015. And it was a part of a ceremony commemorating the 50th anniversary of the institution of the Synod of Bishops by, by Paul VI. And Francis actually lays out the kind of outlines of his synodal church, you know, where, what it is and where, where it's going and how to get to it in the first place, how to establish this. So he, he lays out this whole plan. And um, as part of, part of the argument to explain the synodal church, he's trying desperately, I think desperately is a good word there, because it's so... It's so uh, contorted, <laughs> you know, it's not right. But <clears throat> he's trying to make us think that this was corresponding to like the early church, the primitive church, as so though the primitive church, so-called, so the earliest Catholic uh, Christian, um, well, uh, what should I say, uh, group of believers, you know, was uh, synodal. <clears throat> that what Christ established was synodal, and what the apostles received from our Lord, and what they then established 
by the apostolic authority invested in them by our Lord was a synodal church. In other words, <clears throat> the Francis is basically trying to convey the idea that he's kind of reestablishing the original church here. Mm -hmm. And that the church itself, throughout the years, uh, after the apostles had sort of strayed into more of like an authoritarian church. <clears throat> you see, when we hear this synodal church, we have to realize this is in contrast to a church with real authority from Christ, as though there's a hierarchy, okay? <clears throat> so he's, he's contrasting his synodal church with that old bad authoritarian church that claimed to have the authority from Christ through the Pope, through the bishops. <clears throat> it's not that way. But when he, when he maps it all out for you, what you realize is <clears throat> exactly what he's describing here is the church of the modernists that St. Pius X condemned in the Pescendi, encyclical Pescendi in 1907. It's exactly it. Francis actually goes out and, and, and uses the same vocabulary. He talks about how we have to somehow balance or reconcile the need of the faithful for liberty and the authority of, of the Petrine or Petrine uh, uh, office here where there's authority, but, you know, there has to be liberty too, liberty of thought, liberty of belief, and so on. And um, he says, the reason for the authority uh, given Peter was for unity, to maintain unity, but that in no way, that in no way can be claimed to deprive the believers of their liberty of belief and, and action, okay? Actually, as Pope Pius X uh, brought out, it's the authority of, of Peter that has to learn from the believers what the true belief is, from their experiences. They are the ones who are actually the driving force of the dynamism of the church. Uh, Pope Pius X condemned all these ideas. Francis is here promoting them and even saying that this is the, this is the new way. This is the way of the future. This is the way he's going and taking everybody with him. He's trying to take everybody with him that way. Almost like a democratic church, it sounds like. Bob. Exactly the case. Exactly what Pius X said. It was condemned. Yeah, that's right. And um, so, uh, so the role of the so-called bishops, uh, in contrast with the role of the apostles, right? The role of the bishops is to listen to the people listen to their stories, listen to their experiences of faith, their experiences of God, and the bishops are meant to kind of, uh, kind of distill that down and present it to Francis, who then organizes it in, into formulas. And these are the new dogmas of the moment, okay? I say they're dogmas of the moment because Francis doesn't believe in any fixed dogma. And you can't. I mean, if you're taking with the experience of the, of the, the lived faith from the people, well, those experiences are going to constantly be changing. Right. As a matter of fact, modernism says that they have to, yep. that that's desirable, actually. <laughs> and um, so that experience that they're feeding to the bishops is going to be continually developing and evolving. And the bishop's message to <clears throat> the Peter is going to be continually changing the formulas uh, to meet the modern needs, the needs of modern men. Everything about... about um, Modernism is meeting needs, and, and that has to do with meeting needs of people here and now, living in the world as it is now. They have needs, and the church is there to meet those needs, 
meaning we have to listen to them to see what they need, and the church has to somehow deliver those. And, uh, I mean, read, read uh, Peshendi, uh, go to that section about this whole question, about what they're teaching about the church, <clears throat> authority in the church, and so on, you'll see exactly what I mean. Then read this document of Francis and tell me <clears throat> that they weren't written by the same, <laughs> the same person. It's well, as though Francis was just copying straight out of... But the point is, as you mentioned, Tom, <clears throat> Francis is trying to somehow relate this to the primitive church. That's what the modernists said they were just going to recreate the primitive church, you know. <clears throat> and one of those, an attempt to do that was Francis quoting St. John Chrysostom. <clears throat> and for this quote from St. John Chrysostom, we even have a footnote here, <clears throat> which takes us to the Pathologia Greca. Uh, <clears throat> this is footnote 19 of his document. And so he's citing the actual Greek text of St. John Bosco, uh, St. John Chrysostom's uh, explanation here. But again, last week I mentioned that I don't think that this is, I'm sure, I'm conf confident this is not true. This is not accurate. What, what is the quote, Father? Perhaps you can well, the quote actually from, from Francis is this. If we understand... This is quoting what's the document itself of Francis. If we understand, as St. John Chrysostom says, <clears throat> that church and synod are synonymous, inasmuch as the church is nothing other than the journeying together of God's flock along the paths of history towards the encounter with Christ the Lord, then we understand, too, that within the church, no one can be raised up higher than others. On the contrary, in the church, it is necessary that each person lower himself or herself so as to serve our brothers and sisters along the way. Now, in the paragraph above, he talks about the place of P. Peter trying to, you know, guarantee unity, but the, the place of the, uh, you know, the, any, any vestige of hierarchy is trying to address that question. How can you have authority when you have a synodal church, what's the place of authority in the synodal church? <clears throat> well, this is actually where he goes from that paragraph, talking about Peter and the bishops. He goes on to saying that, so now, notice what he says here, inasmuch as the church is nothing other, okay, get a load of this, the church is nothing other than the journeying together of God's flock along the paths of history towards the encounter with Christ the Lord. So, where on earth have you ever seen a definition of yeah. the church? If I were to ask, if you were to ask me, Father, what is the church? I'm going to say, well, the church is nothing other than the journeying together of God's flock along the paths of history towards the encounter with Christ the Lord. You'd say, what in the world is that? And, uh, you know, this is, this is what he's saying here. Uh, is that in St. John Chrysostom? Absolutely not. It's absurd. It's, it's dishonest is what it is. It's dishonest to append St. John Chrysostom's name after that. But we read in St. John Chrysostom, and uh, I have this on the authority of our own uh, Latin and Greek scholar. Uh, we call him Cornelius a uh, uh, Cornelius, uh, Cornelio. Okay? okay, our local, our own Latin and Greek scholar here. But he's given me the, the citations, he's given me the actual text. 
in Greek and Latin. And all the, the only thing, Francis, uh, the only thing that St. John Chrysostom has, says here that has any resemblance whatsoever to what Francis is saying is, quote, for the word church, <coughs> ecclesia, means assembly or congregation. Okay. And as our Latinist points out, it wasn't just, you know, what Francis has said, uh, uh, church, uh, you know, is rendered as, you know, synod. Uh, there was another word, a Greek word too. It was this or that. And, it, you know, it would be very apparent that um, St. That, uh, John Chrysostom was not in any way saying what Francis is saying. That Francis is taking this bare-bones statement of, uh, of uh, St. John Chrysostom and completely adulterating it and twisting it to serve his own nefarious synodal purpose. Right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the, the closest thing you could get to what St. John Chrysostom said here in, in, in Francis's ideas but follows this, the word church means assembly or congregation. Let Israel rejoice in him that made him. This is a, a, a commentary of uh, St. John Chrysostom on the Psalm 148, or 149, I beg your pardon. Then St. John Chrysostom comments, he places the general benefit before the individual benefits. In what he adds, as if exhorting and saying, Give thanks to God because when you were not, when you were not a people, he produced you and breathed the spirit into you. <clears throat> so, I mean, one might try to argue from that that St. John Chrysostom was indicating <clears throat> that um, what God was emphasizing here, emphasizing here in, in Psalm 149 <clears throat> was the, the benefit of the community or the general benefit over the individual benefit. One could try to make an argument to that effect, but in, in no way does it say what Francis says here. Yeah. And uh, it's just another example of the modernists dishonestly misappropriating things in the past to deceive people and make them think that they are somehow um, continuous or, or even vaguely similar to the church of the past. There, there is nothing, there's no precedent yeah. for this synodal church anywhere. And to appeal to a St. John Chrysostom, the Patriarch of Constantinople, who had genuine authority from Christ through the apostles and through the line of succession, and he used that authority, and he was not synodal. Right? You study the life of St. John Chrysostom. He was not, he didn't believe in synodality. Yeah. That is an atrocity for Francis to do that, but after all, so much of what he says and does is atrocious, so yeah. we shouldn't be surprised by that. Well, Father, I don't think you even have to study the life of St. John Chrysostom because if you, uh, you know, if this is supposed to be our, our Lord's church, if you, if you study the life of our Lord, if you're looking for his church, I think the first thing you have to say is it would be a church that is like our, like our Lord. If you're looking for our Lord's church, you would establish a church that had his character. He would yeah. put his character into it, and I, <laughs> I can't recall any time throughout any of the Gospels where our Lord has a synod where he, say, pulls his, his, uh, his apostles or his disciples and asks their opinion on... on, on oh, he on, didn't, but our Lord did. Oh, okay. When, when's that? Our Lord asked him, who thinkest thou is the greater in the kingdom of heaven, right? Yeah. 
And then our Lord answers the question. But your point is very well made, Tom, because our Lord never took a, a survey of the apostles saying, well, what should we believe now? Yeah. What should I preach now? No, quite, quite, quite the contrary. Yeah, the opposite. He was a, a teacher. They even called him teacher. And mm -hmm. he said over and over again, and many men I say unto you, uh, you know, having dogmatic mm -hmm. uh, statements. And so seemed totally, totally opposite of, of what... Uh, Francis is apparently trying to establish here, but also I thought, you know, and and hearing this idea of the synodal church, it seems like the only type of person that that would appeal to. It's a very proud person, someone who thinks he has uh, an opinion that's worthwhile, someone that that, that is very self-opinionated and wants his opinion to be heard and and, and expressed. Sure, and, I I know better. Nobody has any has the right to command me. What does Pius X say? that the modernists make a loud noise about how they are, you know, recognize the authority and then they do whatever they please. Yeah. And that is the work of uh, great pride. Yeah, and I, I, um, that's just a absolute recipe for, for disaster. No humble person would want anything to do with a, a synodal church. A humble person would, would mm -hmm. seek a, a, a teaching church, a, a, te a church that had divinely revealed truths that... With um, real authority. With that. real authority who could command them. But they well, you know, there are those who, who claim that you and I are the renegades here because we are not, well, um, we are not synodal, I guess, mm. <laughs> because we're traditional, right? Yeah. But uh, so somehow we are resisting the authority of the Francis and uh, they say that we are we are the ones who are on the on the outs now. Mm. Of course, the fact is that we we bound ourselves to what every Catholic is bound by his baptism, Catholic tradition, and to defy that, which is exactly what Francis is doing, he's creating his own church, which is not not the church that Jesus Christ established, not the Catholic Church. <clears throat> um, our our very allegiance to the traditional. Uh, Catholic Church to the Catholic tradition tells us that that's where our first loyalty and obedience has to go mm. because that's the work of the Holy Ghost. Uh, Francis would tell you that the Holy Ghost is decided upon this new synodal way here and so everybody has to follow him in this but the Holy Ghost doesn't work that way. It doesn't, by the way, are you trying to tell me that that God is not a Democrat? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> but, but I... Um, or democratic? I don't, not in the church, for sure. No, I, uh, I don't think so. But um, I, I think pe people that would, that would make that charge against, against uh, traditional Catholics would be the same people that would, would think that Francis, someone like Francis, is very humble because, mm -hmm. say, he, um, you know, he guts the, the papacy and refuses the honors of the papacy or whatever. But we wouldn't call, say, a, a father of a family, we wouldn't call him very humble if he... Uh, you know, took took disrespect from his from his children, or refused to, to punish his his children, or discipline his children. Uh, you know, un, under the guise of, of, of humility, that's not that's that's not humility at, at all. Um, in the in the same sense that uh, traditional Catholics who believe in true authority, they're they're not being disobedient. Um, mm -hmm. So just a, a total misunderstanding, a total. Well, you know, there are those in the the resistance and uh, other conservative Novosoro groups who actually have the idea that they have decided to stay inside the church to fight, and we've abandoned them. We've abandoned the church, and we've abandoned uh, them to fight on in the, ch in the church, 
now going into Francis's synodal church, <clears throat> they're carrying on the fight for Catholic tradition within the synodal church. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> they look upon us as being sort of those who simply bolted because we're, we're, for whatever reason, we're not up to the, the fight. You know? <clears throat> what do you say to that? Well, their argument certainly isn't, isn't with us, Father, because we, we profess and believe the exact same things that the apostles believed. Uh, we, we pray the Apostles' Creed every day. Um, that we, we practice the faith that Pope St. Pius V, um, we, we, we pray the, the Mass that he promulgated. So their, their, um, their argument definitely is not with us, and I would turn that on them and say, well, um, show me how what you're practicing has any basis. What, I mean, where, where, does this, where does this come from? What is your authority? Talk about authority. Well, you know, you'd ask them, how, how can they recognize that the Novus Ordo, and that many of them do recognize, that is not Catholicism. And, uh, you know, you ask them, well, how can you stay within the structure there, uh, claim that you're fighting for something that that structure has condemned and rejected? And, um, but, you know, they, they see their own point of view, and when you try to talk to them and make them understand, there's another point of view that is a very valid point of view. When you have this idea that you're staying within the, the structure of the, of the new order, which was created after Vatican II, and is even now in the process of being continually created and recreated. And uh, this whole Novus Ordo structure is something that was born at Vatican II, was hatched at Vatican II, I would say, and is, is, is an entirely new and different structure. Basically still trying to use the same names, but it's not the same structure uh, that the Church was before. And you were saying that I'm going to hold on to the old faith within that, that structure. You're going to hold on to the old religion within that structure. Can, can you understand, though, why we would say that's impossible to do? That's, a, that's, a, an, implicit, that's an explicit contradiction for a Catholic mm -hmm. to try to do that. Uh, because inevitably you have to compromise with what you yourself recognize is not really Catholic, it is not really Catholicism. And in order to try to maintain your situation, you're continually compromising with what the Church has always condemned. That's contrary to Catholic tradition. Whereas our point is that it's not fighting the fight to compromise. That the only way to really fight the fight for Catholic tradition is not to compromise. And that is the Catholic thing to do. But you try to explain this to them, and it, it, it does not register. Mm. You know, because they're so, they're so focused on, well, we have to stay in the structure no matter what the structure is or no matter who makes the structure and how they distort it and how they twist it and how they falsify it. We have to find a way to stay in the structure. They don't, they, I guess they can't face the fact that the Nova Soto structure itself has been adulterated by the modernist enemies of the faith and falsified by them. And in trying desperately to, to maintain in that structure, they're actually empowering the modernists to do more damage. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at the damage that Francis has done to the very concept of the papacy in the, in the people of the, of the New Order. No matter how conservative they are, they, they have to somehow uh, adjust the whole, their whole belief of what the papacy is um, in order to fit Francis. They have to continually do that. At what point do they get, do they get the understanding that well, you know, 
if I if I can say, okay, a pope can be a heretic, he can be openly heretical, he can do things that are very damaging to the church that no popes have done before, and I still have to insist that he must be the pope without any qu- even questioning it. It must occur to them at some point, you'd hope, well, at what, at what point am I actually destroying the very concept of the papacy as taught by the Catholic Church? And they go back in time and they read what the Church itself has written about the papacy, and they try to fit that to Francis. There's no way to fit that, to fit a Francis into that, that concept of what, what the papacy is and who the Pope is, therefore. Mm-hmm. So anyway, but they're, they're living a contradiction. And um, something has to give, and I fear it all too often. Uh, they make their peace with modernism, and they and they become well. They, they basically, they they just lose the essence of the faith. You know, they mm-hmm. they begin to fall into that. They lapse into that kind of stupor. That whatever, wherever they're leading, wherever the modern hierarchy is leading, that's where we have to go. Mm-hmm. Regardless. Well, a very great saint once said that that they, meaning the, the heretics, have the the churches, but we have the faith, and I think that maybe that that yeah. applies today. But you know, Saint Athanasius said that. Yeah, oh, but it it, um, you know, it it seems like that those who who stay in the Novus Ordo that that have the faith, and you talk about this this structure, um, we certainly would would account as, as very foolish anyone who. Uh, Say is is praying in a, a Catholic church, and uh, let's say that that church is um, taken over, ransacked by by Satanist or or, um, or Muslims, anything anything of the sort. And yet they they those Catholics who are praying in that church say, well, I have to stay in this church because it's a Catholic church after all. Mm. I have to stay in this, no matter that uh, you know the the Catholic mass isn't being offered here anymore. It's been taken over by. Uh, Satanist or, or whatever, but yet I have to remain in this church because this is a Catholic a Catholic church. Um, it's a Catholic structure here. We would say anyone who who thought that way or, or said anything like that would be very, very, very foolish. And I think that um, might not be a perfect analogy, but I, I think in, in some ways that describes what's going on with the Novus Ordo. Well, it has the foundation. That analogy has the foundation of what Saint Athanasius said. So I agree with that. So the only real solution is. I believe, anyway, to practice the traditional Catholic faith. Yeah. And the only way you can really do that is not within the context of the Novus Ordo. I mean, you know, I've actually had uh, priests of the fraternity of St. Peter say, well, of course, Father Jenkins can get away with doing this. I can't. He can get away with it because he doesn't recognize, you know, that authority uh, that I do. So because I recognize this authority, I mean, I have to compromise. He essentially said exactly what I'm saying here. Problem is, he doesn't see the contradiction that he's living in compromising what he believes is the right thing to do in order to be still, you know, uh, considered one of the boys uh, on that team. Um, But, uh, I mean, to be Catholic, you have to have an allegiance first to Christ and to the faith and to the Catholic religion and Catholic tradition. You know, you cannot um, basically relegate Catholic tradition to <clears throat> some sort of negotiable <clears throat> commodity for the sake of um, going along to get along. It just Catholics can't do that. They're actually by doing that, they are actually undermining 
not only their faith, but the faith of others who follow them. Mm -hmm. So we just have to stand firm for that, you know, have to stand firmly for that. In times of confusion, times of chaos, and certainly we're in a time like that, but look in the past, it's the Catholics who just on their own carried on their faith, right? Even during times like the Great Western Schism, when you had three men claiming to be the Pope, three different men at the same time claiming to be Pope, and certain arguments in the favor of each one of them, you know. So the Catholics were very confused. But whether the Catholics went, you know, to Urban and his uh, followers or his successors in Rome and, or went to Avignon or went to Pisa, um, they were practicing the same faith. They were practicing the same religion. Now, this is very different today because what they foisted upon us or tried to foist upon us is a false religion that is really what Paul VI said it was. It's a new order. It's a new order of religion. And uh, it's unfortunately, uh, well, uh, it's developing very rapidly into the religion of the world. Mm -hmm. um, so, anyway, Tom. Okay. Well, there you are. Father, thank you. I know you had a few other things to bring up tonight. But I don't know that you're going to get to them right now. I don't think so. Father, I'm sorry but, about that. Uh, luckily, we'll be back next week, so we can Well, let's keep that thought. Yes. yes. Let's hold those questions. Yeah. Well, Father, thanks for being here tonight. And um, thank you for being a traditional Catholic priest and offering the traditional Catholic Mass and, and sacraments and making that available so that people can still practice their traditional Catholic faith. Absolutely. Thank you for that. God bless you. A lot of thanks are due, but they all, all thanks is due to God. Absolutely. Well, thanks. thank you to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.